listening to Darling Shine, a podcast by Chloe Fisher and myself, Elodie Pullen. Join us as we blindly navigate and unpack the raw and often unspoken experiences of womanhood, grief, friendship, and everything in between. Encompassing all emotions, ugly and beautiful, we've made a promise to ourselves to find our shine and build a life of triumph and joy. Darling Shine is your survival kit to the unexpected shit life throws at you. Okay, so we would like to welcome to today's episode the legendary IVF specialist, Dr. Key Um. So Dr. Key is a senior Monaf IVF specialist and one of the brightest medical minds in Australia. Qualified as a doctor and a specialist gynecologist, he chooses to practice solely in the field of reproductive medicine and infertility and is a passionate advocate of preventative medicine and pre-planning. He believes that knowledge is power and that sometimes nature needs a little help in hand. I was recommended to Key through my naturopath, actually. She highly recommended him as he combines holistic therapies with modern medicine. So although the IVF process is obviously a crazy roller coaster ride, both Paul and I have loved every single appointment with Key. We always leave the room laughing somehow. <laughs> um, and he's also been an amazing help to me while in the US um, checking in and helping me along the way. But I definitely miss him being my doctor. <laughs> um, but with that being said, welcome to the podcast. Yay. All right. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank, thanks for having me. Uh, you know, I think what you guys are doing is really great, uh, creating awareness and in, in a topic that is really very topical at the moment, uh, given that, you know, uh, fertility issues is uh, more common than what we think it is. Mm-hmm. I know. We're, we're so excited to have you on. We're so glad that we actually got to line up a time because everyone's very busy. I know <laughs> you're very busy. You literally work every day. I'm like, and he also has three children of his own. So he's a busy wow. boy. Life is a bit hectic. Yes. Yeah. Life is busy. Yeah. How do doctors do it? You guys work, especially fertility doctors, because I know you have to be firing at like all hours of the day and some days you're doing procedures and some days you're doing consulting and then you have three kids at home. And a wife. Yes, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's one of those things that you sort of like, you know, you do it because you love what you do. I think, you know, just like anything that you do, if you have the passion, mm. then you tend to be able to, to, to find the energy to do uh, what you love. Yeah. Do you yeah, ever no. get a little holiday in? No. Yeah, yeah, I do. I do every now and then. Oh. But with this COVID, it makes it a bit harder. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. have to go anywhere. Yeah, yeah. But otherwise, no, we are still very lucky in, uh, in Australia. Yes. And now, um, Ongi, do you remember, do you like, do, do, are you okay to be called Ongi? I love that. <laughs> oh, you can call me anything. I love that. She suggested Ongi. earlier that she wanted to call you Onglet. And I was like, okay. Oh, oh God. I think, I think Ongi. <laughs> Ongi, is it okay? Onglet. Right. Yeah, Yeah, everyone gets a nickname. Um, So I, I, as I mentioned above, I guess you, I always say this a lot that knowledge is power and something like I know that you, you're a strong believer in. So for me, if I'd had known about getting my AMH tested years ago, I actually believe that I probably would have been the predicament that I'm in with only just finding out. Um, And I know that you're a big advocate of getting your AMH tested sooner rather than later. And like, why? Why should women get their AMH tested? And can you explain what what it's all about? And you know what? Yeah, do you want to talk about that? Right. No, that is such a great question. Uh, well, AMH is a test of ovarian reserve, and the good thing about this test is that it's not as it's not very invasive at all. It's a simple blood test, and it gives you an overall view about you you know where you sit in terms of the egg numbers. But saying that. 
this test is a test of quantity and it's not a test of quality. And one of the um, misunderstanding uh, people have misunderstood about this test is thinking that this will uh, reflect one's fertility. And clearly, you know, with AMH, it has actually helped a lot of uh, patients to know what they want to know, uh, what they want to do. Uh, they have a better understanding about their timeline. And but just like any test, uh, it's not perfect. Mm. Uh, but in my view, this test is still the best test that we have at the moment. And obviously, in medicine, you don't rely on just one test. You also need to take the whole clinical picture into consideration. So AMH is actually a, a measurement, what we call anti-mullerian hormone, is a measurement of all the tiny follicles in the ovaries. So the more follicles you have in the ovaries, naturally the AMH will be higher. Whereas for people who have uh, low, uh, smaller ovary with less follicles, then naturally the AMH will be uh, will be lower. Mm-hmm. Yes. So it is also a very important test uh, to, as I said before, it is about the timeline. Just because, you know, in our society at the moment, 30s are the new 20s. People are having children later in life. And also, uh, it's, when we talk about fertility care, it's very important to be talking to patients about how many children do you want to have? Mm-hmm. Because we, we, we don't have as much time as, you know, the previous generation where they start in their 20s. So if someone, say, at 32 years old, if they want to have three children, they have to be mind, very mindful about their time. Mm. Okay, because we know uh, when they fall pregnant, which is fantastic news, but generally pregnancy is nine months, looking at babies a year, you always have to add on that birthdays, you know, another two birthdays. So birthdays are very important when it comes to the, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the chance of falling pregnant. Um, and also with my, because I've been in the States, obviously that I wanted to point out there for any listeners that we have that are from the United States, I always go on about my AMH being 3.2, but I've recently found out that the, the measuring it's different. So I believe, cause I was speaking to a fertility specialist over here and I was saying like, my AMH is 3.2 and they're like, well, that's not really that low. And it took us a while to work out that the actual marker is different. So my marker over here is around 0.5. So just make sure wherever you are in the world, um, yeah. It, yeah, you just find out what it is in, for your country sort of thing. Cause they're all yeah. different. Exactly, exactly. That really comes to a different reference range depending on the laboratory. Yeah. yeah. And such an important note what you were saying, like some ladies could have a really low AMH reading but the quality of the eggs might be really good whereas some might have a really high AMH reading but just really crappy quality eggs, right? Yeah. So, yes, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Because they, w- when you're looking at AMH, you need to look at, uh, look at the AMH as in um, – how old you are, you know, what we call as expected uh, AMH in that age group as opposed to uh, uh, on the low side. So if someone, say, have 38, 39 birthdays, then we would expect that the AMH will be on the, on the low side. Whereas if someone is, say, 30 years old, then we would expect that the AMH will be higher. Yes, totally. Yeah. And why is it, Dr. Ong, that some some doctors are a bit reluctant to test for AMH in young females? Yeah, I think it, it is because 
again, it is it is hard because one of the thing uh, criticism about AMH is that you know are we scaring people mm. uh, to having babies or are we not doing the right thing uh, by the patients? And this is why I believe. If you're going to do a blood test for your patients, you need to know exactly what are you going to say to them. You are giving them the options as opposed to asking them mm. to have a baby now. And it's all about the com the communication between the clinician and the patient, and making sure that you're not scaring them, mm -hmm. making sure that you're giving them options in life yeah. because. I've been in this work for quite a few years now, and consistently, one of the things that patients keep on saying to me is that, you know, I wish I knew about this test. I wish I've done something uh, more proactive yeah. uh, when I was younger. But again, you know, humanity, we are master of hindsight. We have never been great at predict predicting the future. So, mm -hmm. having some control, you know, a knowledge about the AMH, you get all the information that's required as a consumer. And then you decide the path yeah. of your journey. Yeah. You know, ultimately, no one can force you what to do. But certainly, this is not a test to say that you have to have a baby now, mm. because mm. You, sh you know, really important to know that you should not have a baby when you're not ready. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. It's just that you know nowadays we have modern technology that can serve the purpose of fertility preservation and hence giving people the options in the future. Yes. Mm -hmm. Cause like a lot of our listeners, a lot of our listeners definitely we, cause we talk about it so much. A lot of our listeners do say, Oh, I made an appointment to my GP and I went there and they wouldn't let me have this test. And I'm like, that's so weird. Why isn't it your body? Shouldn't you be allowed to make that decision and not the doctor? Exactly. Um, it's, 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 I think yeah, it is. It is hard. Is it? It's just because you know there are a lot of uh, misinformation as well, and also sometimes the AMH can be affected by you know if someone has been on the pill. Uh, and again, I always say make a really clear statement: AMH is the best uh, um, measurement of, of of ovarian reserve, but it by by no means it is perfect. Hmm. Hence, you always have to take the whole clinical history mm. combined with AMH mm. and then giving your patients the options. Yeah. Um, going, talking about sort of like on that path, what about the contraceptive pill? And like in your opinion, do you believe that if you take the contraceptive pill, because most girls are on it from like quite a young age for, you know, 10, 15 years, do you think that taking this contraceptive pill is having an effect on fertility later in the piece when they decide to go off and they want to have children? Mm, okay. Very, very, very good question because nowadays it's not uncommon for people to be on, on the pills for quite a while now just because we are starting uh, a family later in life. Um, generally, all depends on what sort of contraceptive that you're using. If you're using the oral contraceptive pill, generally when you stop it after two or three months, everything should go back to normality. Uh, the only one that could possibly uh, extend for quite some time is the injectable uh, contraceptive like Depo-Provera. I think the issue with going on the pill is that it may mask medical conditions. Okay, So for example, if someone is known to have PCOS 
or polycystic ovarian syndrome, where they may have irregular cycle, but if they have been on the pill, what pill is good at is to regulate the cycle. Mm. So they may have a pre-existing condition like PCOS that she's not aware of. And by the time that she come off the pill, she has, she's started having all this irregular cycle. And she said, ah, this is because I have been on the pill for a while. And also, people who have endometriosis and pill has been quite effective in terms of giving uh, uh, patients the quality of life that they want. Mm. But again, it's just a masking. And this is why we see quite a lot of people who have endometriosis and a lot of them has been on the pill for quite some time. It's not uncommon in, in uh, practice uh, in medicine whereby, you know, if someone has uh, a fair bit of period pain, uh, it's not uncommon for uh, women to be, to be told, hey, go on, go on to the pill, uh, skip the cycle, and hopefully that will uh, mm. give you a improve the quality of your life and then by the time that you want to have a baby then you stop okay so oral contraceptive pill is great but it does mask medical conditions like pcos uh, endometriosis is that the same as yeah. is that the same as all the different other contraception because like there's the what's the thing that goes in your arm and then the, no the implanon uh, comes back fairly quickly the the injectable one like depopavira it can sometimes it can take up to you know six months eight months 12 wow. months for the cycle to come back i yeah. didn't even know that, that was a thing. so yeah. <laughs> yeah the difficulty is is really how to differentiate you know the pre-existing condition mm. Okay, so if someone, because we know that polycystic, polycystic ovarian syndrome is very common and a lot of people are actually on the pill because they may mm. have irregular cycle, they may have heavy bleeding. Yeah. Mm. It's okay. funny, I've, I mean, we've got friends that go off the pill and they get their period again like clockwork like and, and their body just is recalibrated or seems to work fine. Whereas when I went off the pill, I didn't get my period back for like two years. My skin was wow, shocking. Okay. Yeah. Yep. So it's just crazy how different everyone's bodies are and react to it. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, medicine is great, but we also have to take, you know, each individual person yeah. into, you know, into consideration as well. You know, uh, you know, the, the only thing sometimes with medicine is that we really try to force, you know, patient into a certain uh, boxes. But, yeah. you know, we know that, you know, there's always grayness. We have to respect that there's always mm -hmm. going to be, you know, uh, grayness in, in whatever we do. And also, I guess there's, of course, no real rules, but just from your perspective, how long should just a regular couple try naturally to conceive before maybe seeking help? Okay, very, very good question. Um, I think there's a lot of uh, things that you have to take into consideration. First thing is uh, the number of birthdays. Now, how many birthdays they have? So, uh, if they have, um, you know, if they are less than 30 years old, then you will probably say, okay, uh, they should probably try up to around 12 months, whereas if they are 35 and above, mm. normally six months. But then again, there's always many factors that you need to be thinking of. If someone have a background history of, say, you know, polycystic ovarian syndrome, having very irregular cycle, then to me, it doesn't make sense to ask them to wait for that 12 months, isn't it? Yes. Because she won't be ovulating that regularly. So she should be treated. If someone has endometriosis, you know that endometriosis, 
is a well-known cause of subfertility. 55% of people who get endometriosis will struggle to, uh, to fall pregnant. So you have to be more proactive. Mm-hmm. So it really comes to, you know, the common sense as well. And also, again, you know, if someone at 35 years old, uh, you know, if she wants to have, you know, two or three children, then you have to be very mindful about their timeline. So, um, you know, you may want to advise them to be more proactive in terms of when to start investigation as opposed to using that, you know, traditional uh, 12 months. See, the definition of subfertility is based on 12 months of trying. But I do believe that was a point of time uh, where uh, people are having children younger, but nowadays we have moved the bar towards the 30-something, hence we really need to shorten down the time. Mm. And there's many, there's, there's, Again, uh, we also have to, the other thing that's really important that I'm really passionate about is that with young people. So young people, if they have sex, I can tell you, you're pretty much done in the first two or three months because these are the people who are at their peak fertility. Mm. So when they don't fall pregnant, it's very, uh, very important to be asking the question, why is it that someone who is at the peak of their fertility mm. Mm are not falling pregnant. But one of the common things that has been consistently I hear all the time is that, hi, the patient is young. She has got plenty of time. She mm. should still continue on trying. Yeah. But I think that's a wrong way of looking at it. Mm. The, the better way is asking the question, why is someone who is fit and healthy, mm. who is 26 years old, she's having more sex than anyone else. Mm. Why is she not falling pregnant? Yeah. There's only two possibilities, isn't it? It's either she has been bloody and lucky mm. or there's always something yeah. yeah because there's only two possibility when it comes to when you're trying to fall pregnant it's either you're unlucky or see there's a i problem. wish that i had this conversation when i was 26 because i pull like i mean i haven't been on the pill for maybe five years and i honestly mm. just didn't even know it didn't even cross my mind that like oh i'm not falling pregnant maybe there's something wrong it just wasn't even in my mind at all and I think that so many of our listeners are going to listen to this and get so much out of it because a lot of our listeners are in that age demographic and maybe some of them after this conversation might be like hang on a second I have been having sex for x amount of time and I haven't fallen pregnant this isn't a fluke Mm. yeah no and this is what I said to uh, a lot of my patients is say for example if we if we just twist it around if someone's 26 years old if she's having sex unprotected and she doesn't want to fall pregnant, I can tell you what, she'll be, sh- she'll be shitting her pants, <laughs> worried about pregnancy, or she'll be going to the chemist to get a morning, morning after pill. pill. Yeah. Because mm. as youngsters, right, girls have been told how fertile they are. If they have sex unprotected, they'll fall yeah. pregnant in the first three or four months. But somehow, when it comes to wanting to fall pregnant, <laughs> then the tune is different. If someone who is young... 25, 26 years old, yeah. if she doesn't fall pregnant after one year or two years, sometimes they're still being asked, how oh, you've got plenty of time, you don't have to worry. Mm, yes. Okay. So, so again, we have to be very mindful. We have to ask the question, young people, fit and healthy, why are they not falling pregnant? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so you have to be proactive. Uh, just, just like anything in life, you have to ask mm. the right questions. Yeah, yeah. so true. I've had, I've had like parents and stuff say to me, what do you mean you're having problems? You guys should be like sneezing on each other and falling pregnant yeah, from that. Yep, exactly. Like it should just exactly. be a piece of cake. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so, seriously. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, so when I so kind of going back onto the endometriosis topic, when I first came to yes. you, obviously the first thing that we did was we did a laparoscopy. Um, and I wanted to know, is this something that you got like, and we obviously found endometriosis that I didn't know about, but is a laparoscopy something that you do generally for most, um, people that come and see you just straight off the bat? And like, can you explain yeah. a little bit about mm. what you're looking okay. for and what it yes. is? Yes. Okay. Um, so endometriosis is very common. So endometriosis is a condition whereby the tissue that you shed every month is, is actually inside you as well. Mm -hmm. And what endometriosis can do is that it can affect fertility by, by affecting the quality of the eggs, or if it's really severe, it can uh, damage the fallopian tube. And in some circumstances, it can actually affect implantation. The issue about endometriosis is that is a diagnosis that to, to be 100% certain, it has to be a keyhole surgery. Mm -hmm. Far too often, we are using ultrasound scan as a modality to exclude endometriosis. Now, that's not the best idea just because you know why. Uh, for endometriosis to be seen on the ultrasound scan, you practically has to ha you have to have mm. severe endometriosis. Mm -hmm. That means we are not picking up minimal, mild, moderate disease. Mm -hmm. We are picking up severe disease. You know, uh, my belief is that if you can catch someone early on, their prognosis is always going to be better. Mm -hmm. We also know from quite a few data, uh, uh, big data from uh, Canada that shows that. You know, people who have endometriosis, if you remove the endometriosis, even in minimal or mild endometriosis, they have a better outcome in the first, you know, four months or five months after the surgery. So, and when I see my patients, when we talk about fertility, we always talk about, okay, why have you not fallen pregnant? Again, I'll go back to the concept I was talking about, are you unlucky or there's a problem? Mm -hmm. If you are not, if you feel that you are un unlucky, then what do you do? You play a few more games, just like people, you know, not the best analogy, like people going to the casino, they play a few more games until the time they say, hey, you know, now nah, this is bullshit and I'm going to stop playing. I've got to go, I've got to try another table or something like that. So, so in terms of investigation, we look at a few things. So we look at what we call as, what are the causes of fertility? So we look at the, you know, how I say to my patients that, quick you know from a very simplistic point of view i say okay you have the uterus that you have to think about you have the embryo that comes from the uh, uh, egg and the sperm and then you have the follow uh, have the fallopian tube so essentially you're talking about the seed the soil and how the egg and the sperm come together so the fallopian tube will probably represents around 10 to 15 percent of the problem the uterus is around five and the big component will be the embryo. So the floating tube is important. It's just like, you know, if it's blocked, it's just like you're going to the airport, the plane, and they, they get it shut. So you're not going to get anywhere. Mm -hmm. um, and so this is when we build on, you know, how are we going to investigate all these things? So there's some people who like to go slow. They do a bit of tests here, here and there. Whereas, <laughs> me. Uh, a, yeah, a lot of people <laughs> will then go hard Turbo. because they need to, they, they just want to tick more boxes. Yeah, that's the yeah, way. Yeah. That, that would explain yeah. why I was like straight in there. I was like, nah, let's just go in. Let's investigate. Yeah. Let's check it out. Obviously. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But then I, I didn't have, I had endometriosis, but I didn't have any yeah. symptoms at all for exactly. having that. Exactly. 
And this is why it's so hard because a lot of them don't have any, uh, you don't have much symptoms at all. And we know that, you know, up to 45% of the time, people have minimal symptoms. And the issue about endometriosis is that everyone is talking about very bad pain where they practically can't go anywhere. Mm -hmm. Again, we are missing the point. We are missing the early diagnosis and we are talking about catching people in the very worst case scenario. Mm -hmm. You know, when people talk about endometriosis, it's all about, I can't go to work. Mm. And I, I've got so much pain, I've got to go to the hospital. But these are the small number of people that have been missed mm. because disease does not just go from nothing to yep. severe disease in just overnight. It goes over the course of years. It means these patients have been completely missed. We know that in Australia, from the time that a patient can talk about endometriosis, uh, talk about you know, some discomfort to the time of diagnosis is around seven and a half years. It takes that so long to get to the stage wow. of diagnosis because a lot of time we are relying on what? Ultrasound scan. And also the, the other big issue that I think that in his personal opinion is that we have normalized period pain. Mm. We have completely normalized it's not period normal. pain. It's not, why would pain be normal? Pain is a stimulus to let the person aware that something is not quite right. So for example, today, if you have a chest pain, what do they do? They put on all this ECG to make sure that you don't have any heart attack. Mm, yeah. Whereas if you got pain around a bit lower here, people will be excluding I know, gallbladder or appendicitis. But when people have period pain, not too often, quite commonly, people will say, oh, that's normal. Mm, put a Go and take on. some painkillers. Yeah. So to me, that's that so doesn't true. make sense. We have normal, I, I just feel that we have normalized period pain. Now, I'm not saying that it is related to endometriosis, but we need to mm -hmm. be taking pain seriously because my view is that there's no physiological, physiological advantage for female species living on this planet to have pain once a month. Mm. There's no reason for that mm. okay. unless someone can tell me, hey, it is important for the survival of female species. It's just like you know a man, you know, getting their getting painful uh, testicle once a month yeah. for their survival. <laughs> it doesn't make sense. Can you imagine that? So uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that would be very bad. <laughs> you know. But again, you know, we have normalized essentially what is mm. your body yeah. trying to tell the person something is not quite right. Whether it is endometriosis or not, we do not know. Mm. But we just shouldn't be thinking about, you know, pain as normal. Where was mine? Do you remember yeah. do you remember how do you remember what mine was? Was it like it wasn't obviously severe because I wasn't having any pain. It was a middle Yeah. Well yours I think yours was a moderate amount. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But again, you know, sometimes people can have severe uh, disease but they don't have much pain whereas uh, some oh, people really? have got minimal mm. uh, pain they can have uh, uh, minimal endometriosis but they can have quite a fair bit of pain as well but again it is it is you know uh, yeah it's, it's quite variable and and it makes it very hard uh, to diagnose but what I'm saying is that do not if anyone who has got pain do not ignore pain yeah. pain is is now we're going to be normal. Yeah, get that checked That's out. So true. Yeah. That's yeah. In really good advice because I feel like they'd be like, I feel like every second girl has really painful periods each month. Yeah. You know? I mean, a lot of it could, 
it has got nothing to do with endometriosis. You know, some of it is just basically, you know, just due to the, uh, you know, the uh, prostaglandin. You yeah. know, sometimes the people who just have uh, more uh, discomfort than others, but you know, it is good to. You know, if it's affecting one's uh, quality of life, you know, we need to address it. Yeah. Or it could be PCOS, right? Are you, are you able to explain PCOS in a bit more depth? Okay, so PCOS is what we call as polycystic ovarian syndrome. So it is a syndrome is is an endocrine condition uh, whereby uh, the diagnosis sometimes can be can be a bit tricky. Okay, but P, P, polycystic ovarian syndrome, how is it is going to affect? female fertility is if she's not ovulating okay if someone have a period of one month mm-hmm. six months three months then it's clearly affecting her mm-hmm. uh chance of falling pregnant because she's not ovulating as frequent uh as as what we want it uh, want them to be um but the treatment for pcos is actually you know very simple uh, you give them uh, ovulation induction agent like clomiphene, letrozole, and you track the cycle and you let and and you see if they, if she got a nice follicle, and then we'll do some blood tests and then we'll let them know when it's a happy hour and they can go for it. Okay, happy but hour. The, yeah, that's right. Um, yeah. So generally, if not ovulating, it's really the only issue. She will fall pregnant very quickly. Yeah. But if she does not fall pregnant very quickly, always remember she could have more than just PCOS because the issue with sometimes is that we always assume that there's only one etiology. Mm. No, it's, there could be more. There might be two or three etiology. There might be a sperm problem. There might be an egg problem. Okay, so by definition, if it's just truly PCOS where someone does not does not overlate. Mm-hmm. Giving them ovulation induction agent, telling them when is the best time to go uh, to have sex, they should fall pregnant very quickly. If they don't fall pregnant, you need to start thinking: could there be more to it mm. than just not ovulating? Mm. Yes. Yeah, and PCOS, you know, you will know it. You know, if they have PCOS, because when you do when you do an ultrasound scan, you know they got plenty of follicles in their ovaries, or, and you know, combined with the AMH is quite high, or, or they may have um, uh, history of irregular cycle, or they may have you know uh, any evidence of you know high androgen level. And with a lot of PCOS patients, we actually put them on metformin. So metformin, and sometimes that can regulate the hormones in the ovaries and make them ovulate mm-hmm. um, and the great news about PCOS is that you know you do have quite a lot of uh, 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 quite a few options mm-hmm. um, but the issue but the bad news about uh, PCOS is is also because we have too many options you know mm-hmm. when we have too many options in life yeah. sometimes it's quite hard to know which one to uh, you know, to, to start off first. Mm, exactly. Yeah, yeah it's, it's tricky <laughs> trying to work out where to yeah. begin, but I feel like it, you just got to start yeah. somewhere and that's sort of like where I've kind of got to. I'm this, you know, you got to start somewhere and then something doesn't work, you got to try another thing and then you, that's, you just got to kind of open the floodgates and just see where you see where you end up. But there's another thing as well that I didn't, we have, I haven't done yet is that is PGS testing and I know that We've been speaking. I've been speaking about this to um, a doctor over here. But what is that? Is that that's like you fast forward to once you do the collection of your eggs, then 
whatever makes it to blastocyst, the embryo stage, you test yep. this before yep. it gets transferred. Yes, Is that correct? Right. Yes. So PGS is basically what we call pre-implantation genetic screening test. So this is when this is part of the extension of IVF process. So IVF is basically getting the eggs, getting the sperm, we put it together, and then we grow it all the way to day five or day six at, at the stage of what we call it as blastocyst. Now, not all embryos can be biopsied. It has to reach a certain uh, stage and it has to be of uh, you know, fairly good quality because otherwise, just like anything in life, you know, there's always a risk to it. So if the embryo is not strong enough, that's the last thing that you want to do because you can compromise the embryo, whereas good embryos generally, um, uh, we, we can actually test it. And how it's done is that the scientists will get a few tissues from the, what we call trophoblastic tissue, uh, tropatidum uh, tissue, and then they will uh, use a, a technology, what we call next generation sequencing. And what it does is that you will calculate the number of chromosome in that embryo. It's either too many or too few, okay? So um, if it comes back as too many uh, chromosome, then we know that this is not compatible with life. And if it's too few, then again, it's not compatible with life. Now, the advantage of that really is um, you, you have to use the technology to make sure that it is actually to your advantage. So generally, people who use this technology are uh, people who uh, generally are older, have more birthdays. So for example, if someone is 30 years of age, the, the risk of miscarriage is probably somewhere between 10 to 15%. But if someone has 40 birthdays, the risk of miscarriage is around 40 to 45%. Mm -hmm. So there's a massive increase in the risk of miscarriage. And we know that when it comes to fertility, it's not only, it's not only about falling pregnant, it's also trying to get all the way to the end point, which is having a baby. And the issue about miscarriages is that it's very hard emotionally for people who have to go through all this you know, fertility journey. But the other very important thing is that they lose a lot of time. Now imagine mm -hmm. a miscarriage happening at 10 weeks. Mm -hmm. By the time that she recover, have a you know surgery, you know, you'll be another two or three months. In essence, that whole process would have lost five to six months. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's good to do this genetic testing because by doing a genetic testing, you literally increase the chance of falling pregnant and reduce the risk of miscarriage. Mm. So for me, but it will never go to zero. So for yeah. me, that's why that's probably like before we do another um, yes. transfer, it's like yeah. really recommended that I do that because it, yeah. Um, but yeah. then my most recent yeah. one, we did test yeah. the embryo that got, we, yeah. we miscarried and it was fine. Yeah. So. Yeah. So again, so very important, a normal genetically tested embryo does not decrease the risk of miscarriage to 0% because although the technology is really good, mm -hmm. but there's still certain things that we cannot uh, test for like deletion gene 
inversion, duplication, you know, all these things that, you know, we still can't uh, diagnose and always say that, you know, if someone, it will bring down the risk of miscarriage, but not yeah, completely not to, uh, to zero. It's also very important for some people whereby they want to have more children. So, uh, and this is a things that uh, I'm advocating more and more now. So if someone say, you know, at 33 years old and they want to have, you know, three, uh, three children and they already have some fertility issue, I always say to them, why don't you go to an IVF cycle? If they are good embryos, get it genetically tested. If it's normal, freeze it mm-hmm. and leave it as a backup for your second or third child. And now let's talk about your first child. Mm-hmm. So you, essentially you do everything in reverse. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because one of the things that I've learned in my practice is that, again, I uh, spoke to you guys about the concept of fertility care. You really need to address how many children do they want to have as a family. We shouldn't just be saying, hey, let's get pregnant first and then we talk about uh, and then we'll see how you go. I think all these things to be has have to be put out front mm-hmm. so that everyone can discuss. And why did I do that? Because you know, I still remember many years ago, a patient of mine that came back to see me, and unfortunately, you know, she then could not have a second child. And she said one thing to me that I always remember: "Say, I wish I would have freeze, frozen some embryos mm-hmm. for my second one." Yeah. Mm-hmm. And this is why I said, yeah, that makes sense because, you know, why not? You know, mm-hmm. you're freezing younger embryos. Yeah. And, you know, once it's frozen, you know that, you know, if it's a good quality mm-hmm. or genetically tested normal embryo, you know, you'll be fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you hear of some um, companies actually getting the – Have I don't know if you've heard of this, but some employers getting the females in the company – to go or like prompting them to go and maybe freeze the eggs so that they can oh. be a bit more career driven yeah. for the next day, like mm-hmm. 10 years mm-hmm. till they're 35 with, yeah. with that like safety net of knowing that they have their embryos in a freezer. Yes. Yeah. So yes. That's cool. I didn't know yeah, that. It's yeah. It's pretty cool. Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, egg freezing is, is, is definitely something that, uh, you know, people need to be thinking of. Yeah. Uh, it is a great way of, you know, freezing uh, the eggs, especially if they're, if they have got good eggs. And, you know, uh, a lot of people, when they couldn't fall pregnant in the future, guess what? They'll still do IVF anyway, most of them. So it's far better to be using eggs that's been collected, you know, mm-hmm. and, and in the freezer uh, as opposed to doing uh, IVF cycles later in life. I think one of the misconceptions about egg freezing is that uh, is, is about, you know, uh, is how good it is. Mm-hmm. Now, it's very important to remember the technology for egg freezing is very good, especially with the use of what we call a snap freeze or vitrification. The issue is that a lot of time people do not know is, uh, is, is because they do not know what their quality of eggs are like. Okay? So if you've got good quality eggs, the technology would not have any problem at all freezing good quality eggs. Mm. And the chance of the egg surviving is at least 95%. But if someone has got poor quality eggs, the technology is just literally freezing poor quality eggs. Mm. So that's very important to, 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 to think of when people go through egg freezing. After the egg freezing, they really need to be talking to their clinician and ask them, you, you have a look at my eggs. Are they good quality or poor quality? Mm-hmm. And this is what I do with my patients. When I freeze their eggs, they come back to see me in the 
a week after the egg freezing, and we have the photos of the eggs, and then we can compare it with what we would expect it to be a good quality uh, eggs. Like for example, and this is the thing that I always show it to uh, my patients after doing a uh, egg collection. Then we say, okay, let's look at your eggs. You know, mm. uh, whether your egg looks great or it doesn't look great. Bit of a scrambled egg. Yeah, scramble eggs, that's right. <laughs> so again, you know, this is just telling people, okay, if mm. someone freezing your eggs at 33, if the eggs looks this way, then we say, hey, you know, it's still good. But if the eggs doesn't look great, that means we need to be telling the patient, saying that, hey, there's, you know, more likely than not, there's really some problem there. Uh, so generally you would not put the scrambled eggs in? No, no, they just won't won't do anything at all. Uh, you know, they won't do anything at all. Because yeah. you hear of the A grade eggs, the B grade eggs. Uh, is anything yeah. th- lower than? I think the A grade, B grade is more related to the embryos. Okay. You know, the embryo uh, uh, classification is based on the inner cell mass, which is the bit that become the baby, okay. whereas the trophoblastic tissue is the bit that become the placenta. So they. they you know the 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 grade the grading is great, but it's also very subjective as well because you know each you can get the same scientist looking at the same embryo a different day yeah. they might call it a bit differently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. And it also yeah. just doesn't mean anything because I had an AA one and it didn't work. So yeah, it's the lack yeah, of yeah. the draw. So exactly. Mm-hmm. So when when AA grade means that this is the highest quality. Mm. That means that it has got the highest highest chance, but is by no means saying that it's compatible mm-hmm. with life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, so very, and then we still have people who have C-grade embryo that put in. Guess what? Yes, they have a lower success rate, but you know there's still, still people work. that go all the way to life birth. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. And you'd never know, obviously, when the child's born that it was an A or a B or a C-grade, right? <laughs> Now that oh, one, all, that, one like all, that one looks like a C one. That one looks like a B one. It will be perfect. They all be still all be perfect. Yes, right. Yeah. <laughs> yes. That's yeah. so funny. Interesting. Um, so with I kind of I'm kind of like rewinding a little bit. So when people first come to see you, is there any supplements that you recommend women and men mm. to be on from like the beginning of their fertility journey? Because there's so many. I mean, yeah. I've read that book that it starts with an egg and it lists off like a uh, yeah. hundred different things. Yeah. Are I there know, some I that know. you you would be like, okay, this is where we start? Yeah. Yeah, I think just anything, right? Moderation is good. You don't want to go too extreme, mm-hmm. okay? So you always start off with things like, you know, taking multivitamin that's required for you to support the pregnancy, making sure that you got a folate, you know, for men, you know, men of it will be uh, more than enough. Mm-hmm. So you always start off, uh, start off with that because at the end of the day, you do not want to be a walking pharmacy. Mm. By the time that you have to put all your medication in the separate bag, then you really have to ask the question you know do you really need to be taking so much medication because you know this planet we got you know billions of people mm. you know they they, they they don't do that okay mm. so be very mindful but it's but it's hard though because when you're going through a journey you want to do everything that is right mm. you know if 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 you have got, if you have 10 opinions of you needing to take all this medication and then suddenly you te- you will end up with 10 different mm. medication uh, you know, and this is where you need to draw the line as in, you know, how much you should be taking and, and you know, and, and again, you know, try to be reasonable. 
And also because, all of them address yeah. different things. Like, you know, there's the Ubiquinol, yes. CoQ10. Yeah, you can be yeah. out, you can go out there and buy that or but you don't actually yeah. know if you yeah. need that one specifically unless you've had some yes. full on yes. investigation, yes. you know? Mm. Yeah, that's right. So a lot of things that we are talking about are all like things like you know, antioxidants. You know, uh, they are you know trying to fight off all those reactive uh, oxygen species uh, that can actually damage the quality uh, of the egg or the sperm. Yeah, as long as you know you keep yourself uh, fit and healthy, uh, you take you know the the. Uh, medication, the multivitamins that is uh, relevant to pregnancy and uh, acupuncture, uh, I, I think is a great thing to, mm. to have during during one's journey. It's just because you know uh, there's some evidence to support its use, and also it's a way of de-stressing mm. uh, you know uh, patients as well. Yeah. Elodie and I yeah. are huge advocates for acupuncture. Yeah, they are. Yeah, yeah. I mean, acupuncture, you know, herbalists, I think a lot of them are fine. It's just that, you know, Western medicine, you know, uh, is, 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 is not very receptive of acupuncturists and, and, and herbal stuff. Yeah. yeah. But at the end of the day, you know, my belief, personal opinion is that, you know, acupuncture and herbal uh, remedy has been around mm. on this planet for far way longer. <laughs> Uh, compared to Western medicine, I still remember as a child, uh, my mom would be, you know, boiling all this nasty, wow. green-looking herbal stuff, you know, for me to oh. me and my siblings <laughs> to drink, and you know, we just do it, and and you know, we work out pretty okay. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's so cool! <laughs> yeah. yeah, I love Chinese medicine. Okay. Um, progesterone. Can I ask you? We yes. love having a little bit of a progesterone <laughs> chat because that shit is yeah, yep, yep, disgusting yep. when it comes out like cottage cheese. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's right. Yes, 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 yes. Um, so progesterone. Can you explain how how important it is after the transfer and why? Because that shit is okay. gross. Yes, progesterone is a very important uh, hormone. So this hormone is generally being produced after ovulation has happened. And what it does is that it gets the lining of the uterus to be ready to be receptive for the uh, embryo. Mm -hmm. Okay, and when pregnancy doesn't uh, happen, uh, this is when the progesterone will drop, mm -hmm. and this is how people start having period. Okay, mm -hmm. now in IVF treatment, the reason why we use progesterone uh, uh, pessaries is is because the 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 uh, the lining is not is not well supported uh, by the corpus luteum, and this is why we have to give women the progesterone uh, pessary for uh, you know uh, for maybe ten or twelve days. If if one pregnant, then some of them will go will go all the way to ten weeks, but some of them will stop depending on you know what the progesterone level is like. So is that like a standard practice every time you do IVF? You everyone's on progesterone from like mm. the transfer. Yes, even if they're yeah, not yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's very important because when IVF first start, started, no one looked at that, and this is and that was one of the one of the reasons why pregnancy rate wasn't that great. Uh, and once we started using progesterone, then you see that the pregnancy rate starts to go up. Right. Uh, it's even more important in the frozen embryo transfer cycle when we are using medication, mm -hmm. estrogen tablet. Uh, you know, this is when we 
do an ultrasound scan to measure the lining of the uterus. Once it gets to around seven to eight millimeter, we start the projections and pessaries yeah. mm -hmm. five days before, and then we put in, uh, thaw out the embryo and place the embryo inside the, mm -hmm. uh, inside the uterus. So the projection is very important in terms of maintaining the lining uh, and make it receptive. Uh, yeah. to the embryos and in natural natural conception yeah. without IVF would couples would, the, would yeah. the female just naturally produce that progesterone on her own? yes once you have ovulated yeah. you will produce a progesterone okay but in some people they have a condition what we call luteal phase defect for whatever reason their progesterone isn't strong and this is why sometimes you do see people who go on progesterone pessaries uh, especially with patients who have got recurrent miscarriages okay so in natural birth oh that's yeah. that's really interesting yeah oh, i've learned mm. so much in this i think that you Me need to too. do your own podcast oh, this good. is really yeah. this has been yeah, really fun <laughs> Um, before we wrap it up, we actually want to talk about, we're going to do some quick fire mm. questions about, you know, like the lucky charms or these things that people say, um, <laughs> so you need to tell us if it's a, it's a myth or it's legit. Yeah. Do you want to go, yeah. Elle? Yeah. Okay. So eating pineapple straight after your transfer. Uh, <laughs> mm, very interesting. Um, very interesting. Uh, I'll probably say uh, oh, it is hard. I, I don't think there's any harm to doing that. Uh, I think one of the things that they talk about uh, eating the pineapple is that it releases a chemical that acts as anti-inflammatory yeah. and also uh, to thin out the uh, blood as well. So say, for example, in some patients who have got, say, antiphospholipid syndrome where they need to be on aspirin or whatever, that might just help it. So, you know, that might help. pineapple is delicious. So I think it's It fine. is delicious. Oh, yeah, and I, yeah. I feel like a lot of the studies, so my doctor, sorry, my, I know these are meant to be quick fire, but my doctor was saying the other day, I was like, I've been eating the dates and she was like, yeah, a lot of, so so they say to eat dates when you're close to labour, um, but she was like, a lot of the studies are li literally produced by the date industry. <laughs> Trying to buying dates. I think it's important to, to first thing is that is in, in medicine or in life is that, you know, is if it does not cause harm, Literally. it's still reasonable. Yeah, they're healthy, yeah. they're and delicious. Yeah, it's, it's a risk, isn't it? You know, pineapple, <laughs> yeah. love it. I mean, they're, I pretty, they're pretty funny yeah. things that people do. Like it yeah. can't really hurt. Like, for yes. example, like yeah. eating Mac McDonald's French fries. I know every time I did a transfer, I was like straight, oh, an excuse. It? Like we always did it first thing <laughs> in the morning oh, and I'd right? look at Paul, I'm like, <laughs> let's go drive through. And he's like, okay, you can get your French fries today. Right? Why is <laughs> that? Anyway. Is it like with salt or something? I think it must be salt, yeah. you know. Then you can try the KFC one, probably they're better. Ooh, oh, salt, yeah. Yeah. Okay, interesting. Mm, Elodie loves oh, hot chips. I prefer the KFC fries. Elodie yeah. loves Yeah, they have hot that chips. special seasoning. I do love a little yeah, KFC. Right. <laughs> <laughs> little yes. You've got to get the large, though. The yeah. small's too small. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they're tasty. That's right. What about wearing green or yellow socks to your embryo transfer? We've seen that one. Oh, that's lovely. No, that was that's that's fantastic. That's really good. Yeah, love it. Yeah, yeah. Now they uh, now a lot of people do. It's, it's you know it is a time where you know you are celebrating part of the journey of getting to a milestone. You know, you do whatever that you yeah. want because it does relaxes you. You do not want the, yeah. the, the process to be too medical. Mm -hmm. Whatever that relaxes you, whatever that makes you happy, do it. So that I the, love the, that. 
the warm, yeah. the warm yeah. feet, warm uterus. That oh, one. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Yellow yes, or do green whatever. socks, yeah. though, specifically. Oh, is that right? Yes. <laughs> yeah. No, I've seen all those. Yeah, no, that's great. What, that's if, what about that's great. what about pomegranate juice? That one I heard about. Mm, that one, I've not really heard of that one. <laughs> so don't How do does that. that work? I don't know. I just saw <laughs> like you just, just drink pomegranate juice around something. It's good for your blood circulation or something. I don't know. Oh, okay. okay, we'll put that and one out. There. I think a lot of it is really based on you know antioxidants, mm-hmm. you know, uh, anti-inflammatory sometimes. And the pomegranate you know. juice industry, yeah, trying to get a little and, dollar. Yes, right. <laughs> yes. Okay. What about the yeah. um? Yeah. What about the one people say surround yourself with turtles? <laughs> With turtles, well, that would be quite hard. Yeah, uh, that one. I think the best one is still, uh, you know, if they need, if they want to do some activities, you know, just have you know more sex. Mm. Yeah, that that's probably helps. <laughs> it increases your chances anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I mean, uh, you know, there's there was an article from South Australia that came out that shows that having sex on the day. Uh, of embryo transfer may help with, uh, you know, uh, may give a higher pregnancy rate. Is it because yeah. it gets those loving hormones flowing? Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is this so that, you know, the semen, you know, does help with, you know, okay. uh, with the implantation? It's got maybe producing some chemical cytokines, everything. Yeah. I love that's interesting yeah. because a lot of people, I think, after a transfer think that they've got to sit still with their legs up. I know weeks. Yes, I mean, I kind of yes, 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 yes. Mm. Yeah, this is what we used to do many, many, many years ago in fertility uh, yeah. uh, IVF clinic in Australia. But nowadays, you know, once the embryo goes in, it stays there. I'm always scared to go and do a wee after. Oh, I know, yeah. I know a lot of people, but but it wouldn't come. It's just like people, you know, whilst they're trying to fall pregnant, they'll say that you know they tilt their pelvis or mm. they, they they stand on your head. You know, I always say to them that's purely oh, yeah. entertainment. You oh know? really? It's never Is that about, not a you know, thing? Increasing so, the chance. No, that's just pure. So if you have sex and you do work? a handstand after you have sex and you oh, put your you legs can. up, it's just purely. F- oh. Yeah, it's purely for a laugh. I used to because do Because if you think about it, right? In the you know in in. Poor countries, you know, the whole family literally sleep in the same room. You can't, you can't possibly have their mum you know, standing on their head, you know, <laughs> and then the children will be asking them, what Why the hell are you doing? Down. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All yeah. right. Well, but you do what you, what you need to do. I've definitely yeah. done that before. Yeah. 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 No. Everyone. Everyone does. Everyone does. But it's just you know for a bit of a laugh. Yes. You Literally, can do that. I used to do handstands after sex, and Chumpy, my partner, would like time it and be like, "All right, it's been a minute. You can come down now." Oh, is that right? Because <laughs> yeah, yeah. and people also talk about things like you know, um, you know, semen coming out to the after uh, after the ejaculation. That's absolutely normal because a mm. lot of the sperm, you know, is basically still in the in the uh, vagina. Only probably, you know, not more than five percent of sperm actually gets inside the uterus. Really? The rest would be in the vagina. Mm. So, uh, because of the uh, environment, the vagina, this, this uh, the sperm will be pretty much, you know, done uh, in the first thirty seconds. Wow. That's why lying down, whatever you do, doesn't really mm. make much difference at all. Any difference? Thirty seconds okay. max. May the best swimmer win. Yep. Yes, yes, that's right. It's always, yeah, it's a natural selection process. Um, I guess be, like, one last question before we go. Um, this has been such a good chat, by the way. We, I've really, really, I've that's actually Thank learned you. Thank you. a lot and I've been through this. But um, is there anything that, any, uh, any tips that you kind of want to leave with women um, and men that are listening that 
you know, for women who are trying to get pregnant, maybe after the age of 30 or, you know, any, any time, is there anything that you, they can do to increase their chances of success? Like, is there any tips? Yeah. It's hard to say, yeah. but I think, you might have some. Yeah. I think regular sex is important mm-hmm. uh, every two or three days. I think that would be very, I think that's an important thing. Also, remembering that, you know, the sperm will survive up to five to seven days and egg will survive maximum up to around two days. There's always a flexibility and hence we always say having sex every two or three mm-hmm. days. For people who are going to do, you know, cycle tracking or peeing on a stick, everything, you know, you can all do that, but just be very mindful. Don't get too stressed about that mm-hmm. because a lot of people, when they do that, when they don't fall pregnant, they start curing asking themselves whether they're actually ovulating. Mm. Women generally will be ovulating if you have a regular cycle. Mm. Regular cycle, it means everything has to work clockwise. Mm -hmm. So there's no such thing as very, very rare to have people who are regular cycle and not ovulate. Mm -hmm. So frequent sex uh, is still the most important thing. Yeah, don't think that you're just going to have sex once a month around ovulation mm, and get pregnant, or maybe you will. Yeah, because because that is really not quite true because, you know, the concept of, you know, uh, having sex on the day of ovulation where, you know, this is, you know, that means that you only have 12 days in a year out of 365 days that you're absolutely fertile. If that's really the case, human species would have been wiped out a long time ago. That's true. Yeah. And also remembering all these peeing on the stick, all these things are of recent times. You know, our parents, our grandparents, they, they don't pee on the stick. No. Yeah, there was no sticks. Don't. Yeah, no sticks. Yeah, well, they, they did have a stick to fall pregnant, yeah, but, <laughs> but not the sort of pee on the stick. Yes. Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. One important that is a stick. Stick, yes. oh, the magic stick. <laughs> yes, yes, that's right. <laughs> that was a really yeah. good way to close yeah, this cool. out. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> I love it, oh, Dr. Ongi. You're good. amazing. Thank you so yeah. much for coming. Thank on. you. No, so. th- thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me. I think it's really great what you guys are doing to create all the uh, awareness and you know, and getting people to think about you know uh, the concept of fertility care. You know, and making sure that, you know, they know what their body is doing, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, clear. Well, my favorite yeah. thing about you, Ongi, is that you, when you're saying someone's age, you say the number of birthdays. You must oh, love yes. a birthday party. Oh, yeah, yeah. Birthday party is always good, apart from mine. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, it's good. I yes. love it. I'm going to start using <laughs> yeah. that. How many birthdays have you had, Chloe? 30. Oh, 30. <laughs> big three zero. But thank you so much. All right. Thanks for having me. Nah, thank right. you so much. Thanks. Okay, bye. bye. See you guys. Bye. bye. Thank you.